today. I'm, I'm kicking off a brand new message series today called Resolved. Resolved. And uh, you're going to see that in just a few minutes, what that means and what we're going to talk about. And um, how, how many of you uh, are watching basketball right now? March Madness. And I've got some basketball people in here, okay? You know, there's something about watching these games. Everything's on the line. Right? Everything's on the line. You win, you keep playing, you lose, your season's over. You know, and I, and I love some of these games because they come down to the wire. They come down to the end. Uh, we, we call it, and some, and some commentators would call it crunch time. It's crunch time. It's coming down to the end. One shot can make, you know, can, can make the game or break the game. You know, it's crunch time down in that final minute. You might be familiar with, it, with football, the last two-minute warning. It's crunch time. You know, maybe if you're in the business world, you can, you can understand crunch time. You're the major project due. And, 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 the, and the corporation or the company say, okay, employees, it's crunch time. You know what that means? That means we all got to put in extra hours because there's a deadline. It's crunch time. We got to get it done. And, uh, and so around here uh, at Lake Point, Every Thursday, we call it Get Her Done Thursday, you know, because we got to get everything done for Sunday. Message is done by sun, uh, Thursday at, at you know, end of the day, Thursday. Program is all printed, you know, the handout note, you know, uh, everything on the screen. It's Get Her Done Thursday. It's crunch time. You know, the word crunch time is actually uh, a phrase that was, um, that was invented in 1984 in New Zealand, of all places. And it took two phrases. They took the phrase showtime, and they took another phrase, when it comes to the crunch. When it comes to the crunch. And that's when they combine those two phrases. I got it on the screen. And Devin, can you put it up on the screen for a minute? It says, you know, showtime, and then when it comes to the crunch, and then they combine it in 1984, and let's just call it crunch time. That's where it comes from. And, uh, and as I think about crunch time, as I think about that phrase, I can't help but to think about where we're at today in our message this morning. We're talking about the life of Christ, the life of Jesus, and this series, Resolved. It is the day that changed eternity. And we're looking at the next few weeks on that last day before we're crucified and everything that Jesus went through. But he was resolved. He was resolute. The Bible says in Luke chapter 9, Verse 51, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And again, the word resolutely, if you're taking notes, it means determined. It means resolved. Jesus was resolved to finish the mission that he came to earth for, and that was to die for the sins of all mankind. And so Jesus, according to Luke chapter 9, verse 51, he's headed to Jerusalem, where he will make his last visit to the temple. He will preach his last sermon. He would eat his last supper with his disciples. Our story today takes us to a place where Jesus is going to pray his last prayers to his heavenly Father. And for Jesus... This is crunch time, crunch time. And for Jesus, crunch time, it will take place 
not in a gym, but in a garden. Not, not in a desk, but behind a tree. Not in a comfortable chair, but crunch time what happened on a cold, hard ground. It's the night before Jesus would die on the cross. Jesus and his disciples have spent about four hours in the upper room where Jesus will introduce a new way to remember him by way of communion. By the way, in our church in a couple of weeks, we will have communion. But Jesus is in the upper room, and from 4 o'clock in the afternoon to about 8 o'clock, he spent time with his disciples one last time. Around 8 o'clock at night, Jesus and his disciples, they walk about a half a mile from where they were in the upper room in Jerusalem down to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, to get to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus would have crossed over the Kidron Brook, which flowed in the valley between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. I have a picture of what that would have looked like. This is the valley of the Kidron, the Kidron Valley. Some would call it the Valley of the Kings. Same place, same idea. And you will see it on the right side of the screen, a giant wall. That's the city of Jerusalem. That's the eastern wall. On the other side of this wall, just on the, on, the, uh, on the north end of this wall is where the temple would be, just on the other side of this wall. Where this picture is taken from this viewpoint, it's very likely to be very close to where the Garden of Gethsemane would have been. The Garden of Gethsemane is on the, on the bottom slope of the Mount of Olives, just looking toward Jerusalem. And so Jesus would have crossed the Kidron Brook that flowed down the middle of this valley, it was just a narrow creek that one could easily step over. By the way, the name Kidron means dark, gloomy. Dark and gloomy. By the way, what the Kidron Brook, the Jewish person would never drink the water from the Kidron because it carried the sewage from Jerusalem. Not only that, there was a trench that would have been dug from the Temple Mount, from the, from the city of Jerusalem. A trench so that the excess blood from the animal sacrifices could flow down into the valley into the Kidron Brook. Josephus, the historian, he wrote that the brook Kidron often ran red with the blood of sacrifices. We know at this night there was a full moon because a full moon would have marked the Passover. I can imagine that Jesus stepped over this river of blood. He saw in the moon reflected on his dark surface. And I wondered if Jesus himself paused to consider that within 12 hours, his own blood would trickle down from the Calvary Mount into the same very stream that he's stepping over. They make it to the garden where Jesus and the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they would spend the next four hours in the garden from eight o'clock at night to about midnight when Jesus was erected. The word Gethsemane, if you're taking notes, it literally means olive press, olive press. If you were to go into the garden, you would see giant olive trees. You would walk in there and you would see the same very trees that most likely would have been around the time of Jesus. 
In fact, the, 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 the olive trees in the Garden of Gethsemane, the olives don't grow up. They grow fat. They get bigger and bigger, and their trunk gets wider and wider. And they, get really, they have these gnarly branches, and they produce olives. They produce these olives. And when you think about olives, you know, olives, you know, in order for, you know, when, when you squeeze the olives, oil comes out. And very likely in the middle of that garden, there was an olive press that was busy, busy taking the fruit or the olives off those trees, producing olives. And I want you to make the importance of this image. Before Jesus was to go to the cross, he had to go through the olive press. You know, throughout scripture, when, when, when you see the idea of oil, it represents a spiritual meaning. It represents the anointing of God, the power of God. And don't miss this. The anointing of God, the greatest oil or the greatest anointing in your life is after you are pressed, after you are broken. The only way for oil and for the power of God, for, the, for God, the greatest oil to be poured out from our life is when we're pressed. And for the next four hours, we're going to see today that Jesus was about to face the greatest pressing, the most stress-filled moment of his life. Jesus knew that before that there could be a resurrection, Jesus had to go through the horrors of the cross. I want us to look at the gospel story in Matthew chapter 26 of the garden experience. I, I want to mention also that the Garden Experience is also mentioned in two other Gospels, in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. But we're going to look at Matthew today. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 36. Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. He said to them, sit here while I go over and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, with him. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. He returned to his disciples and found them taking a nap. They said, couldn't you guys just keep watch with me for one, for one hour? In verse 41, he said, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away. Jesus went away a second time and he prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he found them again sleeping because their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and went away once more, and he prayed a third time, saying the same thing. And he returned to the disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my, be my betrayer. Jesus knew in the garden that it was crunch time. 
In New Day's entire life, it all comes down to this, point, to this moment. And so I'd like for us to look at this passage of scripture, and there are three things that we can learn from Jesus that we can apply to our lives this morning. Number one, if you're taking note, crunch times involve seeking the will of God. Crunch time involve seeking God's will. In the few times that we see Jesus praying in the gospel, only one time do we ever see him praying the same thing more than once. And we find it in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see him praying it three times, the same prayer. In verse number 39, verse 42, and then verse 44, where he said, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. In the most anguished, difficult prayer that Jesus ever prayed, one thing was on his heart, one thing that was on his mind, and that was to do the will of God. The one thing that had brought Jesus to the garden on the darkest of nights, the darkest of all nights in the history of mankind, it was to do the will of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but really the entire Bible is the story of two gardens, the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. What one man did in one garden ruin us. What another man did in another garden rescued us. In the first garden, a man named Adam, he decided to seek his own will rather than doing God's will. And because of that, we now have the four major problems in the world. Sin, sorrow, sickness, and death. And the ultimate reason why we have war and why we have cancer and murder, divorce, adultery, terrorism, greed, jealousy. It's all because of one man. He looked at God and said, God, it's not your will, but mine be done. But when Jesus came to the garden, he said to God, God, not my will, but yours be done. And just like Jesus, we're here every day as followers of Jesus Christ to seek the will of God. Every day we're about seeking, finding, and doing God's will. And that's crunch time. Crunch time involves seeking God's will in your life. But here's the second thought, the second lesson that we can learn from this story is that crunch time it also includes struggling to do God's will. It's one thing to define God's will, it's another thing to do God's will. And there's a struggle. And in the garden, we see the struggle. We see this cosmic struggle with Jesus. He said, to, you know, and the struggle was to follow up with the will of the God or not to. And Gethsemane, the fate of all mankind, was at a crossroad. Eternity hanging in the balance for you and for me. And Jesus knew it. Jesus knew the struggle, and the struggle was real. In fact, the stress, the stress, the struggle was so great that he almost, Jesus almost died right there in the garden. Matthew, he puts it this way in verse 38. He, and Jesus said, my, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow 
to the point of, of death. Dr. Luke, in his account of the garden experience, he recorded it this way in, verse number, in Luke chapter 22, verse 44. He said, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus literally had blood sweat. There's actually a medical terminology. I've got it on the screen here for you, so just in case I don't say it right. But the terminology is hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. How many of you, uh, that's it, right? Uh, yeah, there you go. I got some nurses. I'm looking at them. You know, some medical people. <laughs> you know, hematidrosis. It's a very rare condition. You know, and if you ever experience it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't survive it. The stress is when a person is under a great amount of stress that the capillaries is under your skin start to burst into blood. Your, your heart rate is beating a million miles per minute. That's an exaggeration, but you know what I'm saying. It's just, you know, your blood pressure is through the roof. A person does not survive. It's a very rare condition, but if you, ha- if you ever go through it, you don't survive it. And Jesus, in this moment, it's barely hanging on. The struggle was real. To do or not to do God's will. And in the passage of scripture, it, it, it's interesting that Jesus in his prayer, he, he mentioned a cup. He, he talked about the cup. We, we see this you know, in his prayer. He says, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. I want to talk about it, what, about the cup. What, what is the cup? Did Jesus bring a water bottle to the garden? You know, was just a coffee cup that he had, and he was asking God to remove the cup? No, to drink the cup, what he was talking about, what it means to experience something. That's what it means to drink the cup. It means to experience something. And, and, and God's will for Jesus was to drink of this specific cup that, he, that God said, this is what you need to experience. This is what you've got to go through for me. And the question is, what was it that Jesus saw in the cup that was so horrible that he didn't want to touch it? I, I've got some here. Uh, a couple cups here to give you an idea of what Jesus saw in the cup. If you're taking notes, the first cup, it's the cup of isolation. And I pour in this cup here. I pour in a cup of sand. When I think about sand, I think about a desert island being alone on a desert island. And I know so many people, and say, you know, I got so many people around me, but I feel like I'm on an island all alone. And Jesus saw in this cup, he saw the pain of isolation. I mean, think about Jesus for a minute. Jesus loved to be around people. If there was ever a people person, Jesus was it. Early in his ministry, we had Thousands and thousands and thousands of people following after him. And as his ministry goes on, 
the number of people following him started to trim down. On the night before he was to be crucified in the upper room, there were 12. And remember in the story, there's one that leaves, betrays him. Now there's 11. They get to the garden, they're down to three. When the mob comes, all the disciples scattered. Jesus died alone on a cross. He saw that. In fact, on a cross, his own heavenly father would forsake him as well. He saw the pain of a fellowship that he's had for eternity with his heavenly father that would be broken. I don't know about some of you here today, maybe you, under, maybe you know what I'm talking about, the pain of isolation, of loneliness. It's a real thing, understand. But I want you all to know this, that you have a savior who understands your loneliness, the pain of isolation. He knows all about it, and he experienced that in this cup. There was a second cup that he saw. If you're taking notes, it's the cup of physical pain. He saw the cup of physical pain. Our Savior Jesus, although he was 100% God, was also 100% man. He had nerves running through his body, just like yours. And in the cup, he saw the rough hands that would grab him and tear him and beat him and, and pull his beard. In his cup, in the cup, he saw the, 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 the crown of thorns that would be shoved down his head. In the cup, he heard the whistles of the cats of nine tails, whipping over his naked back over and over and over again. It was in this cup that he saw the nails piercing his hands and his feet and the spears that would go through his side. And I can see Jesus in this moment as he looked into this cup, he said, Father, take it away. The thought of having to go through all of this is too much to bear. I mean, think about this. I, I've never had major surgery in my life, but some of you had. And maybe you can relate with this a little bit. You know, it's the, it's the dread. It's the anticipation of, of, the, of the surgery that you know you have to have. It, it, it's worse. You know, the dread and the, the, the anticipation of it is worse than the actual surgery itself. You know, the sleepless night going in, and Jesus was feeling all the dread of this. And he knew that this was going to happen within 12 hours. And there was a third cup. The third cup was bigger in comparison to the pain of isolation and physical pain. 
It was the third cup that shook Jesus to the core. If you're taking note, that was the cup of sinful shame. The cup of sinful shame. His holiness, he was 100% God. As he looked into a cup, his holiness, who's never, who's never thought of sin, who's never committed sin. His holiness reacted so severely to this cup because he knew that he had to take on the sins of the world. And not only did he take on the sins of the world, he became sin. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And on that cross, Jesus knew that he would have to experience the sin of all of humanity. And on that cross, he wouldn't just take on the sin, but he would actually immerse himself in the sins of the world. And it was in the garden, he's facing all three cups. The cup of isolation, the cup of physical pain, and the cup of sinful shame. He knew that by taking on the cups, that he would bring on the wrath of God in his life. And he would experience something that he's never experienced before, and did that for you. And he did that for me. Crunch time involves struggles. Our Heavenly Father experienced struggles in the garden. But crunch time number three, it also involves, if you're taking notes, invites surrendering to the will of the Father. Yet Jesus cried out and said, God, if there's another way, if, we, if I can not drink of this cup, if I can find a different way around this, let's find that way. But at the end of his prayer, he realized that there wasn't another way. And at the end of the day, he said, okay, God, not my will, but your will be done. God, I wish we could take away the isolation and the pain and, and the physical pain and the disgrace and shame of mankind. But I cherish your will above my own. And I want to do what you want to do. And within the Garden of Gethsemane, he was seeking the will of God. He knew what he had to do. He was resolved to do God's will. And yet the struggle was real. But at the end of the day, Jesus surrendered and said, okay, not my will, but yours be done. My question for you today as we talk about takeaways, what is your Garden of Gethsemane? In fact, what is, what is your cup? What's inside your cup? What is it that God has you? What is it that God wants you to do? What is it that he has for you next? 
I actually see God's will and can look and say, hey, I want to do God's will, but man, God, I don't know that I want to go through this. I don't know that I want to go through this cup that you have for me. What is it? What is your Gethsemane? You understand, we have to go through the press, and when we go through the press, that's when God's greatest anointing is in your life, and some of you are missing out. You're missing out on the power of God in your life because you're not willing to go through the press. You're not willing to go through the cup. So what do we do? Well, we do what Jesus did. Three quick notes. You pray. And seek God and say, God, what do you want me to do? And you pray. Listen, you pray first. This is the first thing we do. It's not a last resort. We do this first. And some of you say, well, Scott, I, 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 I've done that. I pray. Great. Then you need to do number two. You need to surrender your will to God. You need to surrender your will to God. You may be asking God to change your circumstances, but God is more interested in changing you. You want him to fix the problem. God wants to fix you. You're like, God, get me out of this mess. God said, I'm not going to change your circumstances. I'm using the circumstances to change your life. I just need you to surrender your will to me. And like Jesus, never hesitate to ask God for what you want. Right? You know, when you pray, ask God for what you want. But at the end of the day, we need to ask him, but God, not my will, but yours be done. And here's the third thought. We have to trust God's perfect plan. That's what Jesus had to do in the garden. For Jesus, the cross was always God's plan. It was scary. It was intimidating. Yes, Jesus had a moment of hesitation. But at the end of the day, he decided to trust his father's plan. My friend, God has a plan for you. Will you trust him? And after praying the third time in the garden, while the disciples are napping, Jesus is praying. Jesus returned to the disciples in verse 46. He wakes them up and he said this. And in Matthew chapter 22, verse 46, it says, rise, let us go. Rise up, let us go. And then Jesus, he turned to face the mob. You know, as we close here today, I, I, I've heard someone say recently, there are two ways to spell fear. Fear, number one, and a lot of people do this, fear means, for a lot of people, forget everything and run. In fact, that's what a lot of us do. We forget everything and we run. We go the opposite direction. I mean, I have to think of story after story after stories in, in the Bible. I think of Jonah and the whale. God said, go. He ran in a different direction. He was scared. He had fear. He forget everything and run. But Jesus spells fear a different way. And this is how he spelled it. Face everything and rise. Face everything and rise. 
In verse 46, Jesus rise up and face the mob. He was willing to go through the cops for you and for me. Hey, where are you right now? What, what is it that's holding you back? You see the cup, whatever that cup is. They say, God, it's a struggle. I know what you want me to do, but I don't know that I want to drink the cup. It's time for you to face everything and rise up. Face everything and rise. What is it? Maybe in your marriage, maybe it's in your, you know, maybe it's at your work. Maybe there's something you need to face, you know, when it comes to a next step in your spiritual walk with God. Maybe you've never asked Jesus to become Lord and Savior of your life. Maybe that's the next thing you need to do. Maybe that's the cup that God wants you to drink today. Maybe you've asked Jesus to come in your life, to be your Lord and Savior, but you've never taken the next step in believer's baptism. He said, that's my cup, and I know it. It's time for you to face everything and rise up. Face your fear. Where are you right now? Are you ready to forget everything and run? Well, my friend, are you ready to trust God, drink the cup, and face everything and rise? God will help us, God will help us today. God help us to be resolved like your son Jesus. He was resolved, resolute, to do whatever it takes so that we can have eternal life. And thank you that Jesus in the garden put the cup and surrendered his will to the Father's will. God, maybe there's someone here today. They have a cup in front of them, a cup that you have in front of them. It's their next step, whatever that might be. And there's fear. We want to forget everything. We want to run. God, I pray that we would trust you to surrender to your will and to face everything and rise and face our fears. Knowing that on the other side of the garden of Gethsemane, the other side of the olive press, it's the anointing that you have in our lives. And some of us are missing out on the greatest anointing you have in our lives because we refuse. We refuse to go through the press. So God, we ask you to help us here in the next few minutes as we worship, as we celebrate those who are taking their next step in baptism. God, maybe there's someone here today that's doing next step baptism. They just need to do it today, right now. I pray that in the next few minutes, they make that decision to face everything and to rise. In Jesus' name, amen.